Chapter Five of The Gamekeeper at Home. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Andy Minter. The Gamekeeper at Home by Richard Jeffreys. Chapter Five. Some of his subjects: dogs, rabbits, mice, and such small deer. When a dog, young and yet unskilled, follows his master across the meadows, it often happens that he meets with difficulties which sorely try the capacity of the inexperienced brain. The two come to a broad, deep brook. The man glances at the opposite bank, and compares in his mind the distance to the other side with other distances he has previously leapt. The result is not quite satisfactory. Somehow a latent doubt develops itself into a question of his ability to spring over. He cranes his neck, looks at the jump sideways to get an angular measurement, retires a few paces to run, shakes his head, deliberately, instinctively glances round as if for assistance or advice, and presently again advances to the edge. No, it will not do. He recalls to mind the division of space into yards, feet, and inches, and endeavours to apply it without a rule to the smooth surface of the water. He can judge a yard on the grass, because there is something to fix the eye on, the tall bennet or the buttercup yonder, but the water affords no data. On second thought, yes, even the smooth-flowing current has its marks. Here, not far from the steep bank, is a flag, bowed or broken, whose pennant-like tongue of green floats just beneath the surface, slowly vibrating to and fro, as you wave your hand in token of farewell. This is Mark One, say, three feet from the shore. Somewhat further, there is a curl upon the water, not constant, but coming every few seconds in obedience to the increase or decrease of the volume of the stream, which there meets with some slight obstacle out of sight. For, although the water appears level and unvarying, it really rises and sinks in ever so minute a degree, with a rhythmic alternation. If you will lie down on the sward, you may sometimes see it by fixing a steady gaze upon the small circular cave where the gallery of a water-rat opens on this, the Grand Canal of his Venice. Into it there rises now and again a gentle swell, barely perceptible, a faint pulse rising and falling. The stream is slightly fuller and stronger at one moment than another, and with each swell the curl or tiny whirlpool rotates above the hidden irregularity of the bottom. If you sit by the dam higher up the brook, and watch the arch of the cataract rolling over it, it is perhaps more visible. Every now and then a check seems to stay the current momentarily, and at night, when it is perfectly still, listening to the murmur of the falling water from a distance, under the apple-trees in the garden, it runs a scale, now up, then down, each variation of volume changing the musical note. This faint undulation is more visible in some brooks than others. A third mark is where a branch, as it was carried along, grounded on a shallow spot, and one mast, as it were, of the wreck protruding upwards, catches the stray weeds as they swim down and holds them. Thus, step by step, the mind of the man measures the distance, and assures him that it is a little beyond what he has hitherto attempted, yet will not extra exertion clear it? For having once approached the brink, shame and dislike of giving up will pull him forward, he walks hastily twenty yards up the brook, then as many the other way, but discovers no more favourable spot, hesitates again, next carefully examines the tripping-place, lest the turf, undermined, yield to the sudden pressure, as also the landing, for fear of falling back. Finally, 
he retires a few yards, and pauses a second and runs. Even after the start, uncertain in mind and but half resolved, it is his own motion which impels the will, and he arrives on the opposite shore with a sense of surprise. Now comes the dog, and note his actions. Contrast the two, and say which is instinct, which is mind. The dog races to the bank. He has hitherto been hunting in a hedge, and suddenly misses his master, and, like his lord, stops short on the brink. He has had but little experience in jumping as yet. Water is not his natural element, and he pauses doubtfully. He looks across earnestly, sniffs the air as if to smell the distance, then whines in distress of mind. Presently he makes a movement to spring, and checks it, and turns round as if looking for advice or encouragement. Next he runs back a short way, as if about to give up, returns, and cranes over the brink, after which he follows the bank up and down, barking in excitement, but always coming back to the original spot. The lines of his face, the straining eye, the voice that seems struggling to articulate in the throat, the attitude of the body, all convey the idea of intense desire, which fear prevents him from translating into action. There is indecision, uncertainty, in the nervous grasp of the paws on the grass, in the quick short coursings to and fro. Would infallible instinct hesitate? He has no knowledge of yards, feet, and inches, yet he is clearly trying to judge the distance. Finally, just as his master disappears through a gateway, the agony of his mind rises to the highest pitch. He advances to the very brink, he half springs, stays himself, his hinder paws slip down the steep bank, he partly loses his balance, and then makes a great leap, lights with a splash in midstream, and swims the remainder with ease. There is at least a singular coincidence in the outward actions of the two. The gamekeeper, with dogs around him from morning till night, associated with them from childhood, has no doubts upon the matter whatsoever, but with characteristic decision is perfectly certain that they think and reason in the same way as human beings, though of course in a limited degree. Most of his class believe likewise in the reasoning power of the dog, so do shepherds, and so too the labourers who wait on and feed cattle are fully persuaded of their intelligence, which, however, in no way prevents them throwing the milking-stool at their heads when unruly. But the concession of reason is no guarantee against ill-usage, else the labourer's wife would escape. The keeper, without thinking it, perhaps affords a strong illustration of his own firm faith in the mind of the dog. His are taught their proper business thoroughly, but there it ends. "'I never makes them learn no tricks,' says he, "'because I don't like to see them made fools of.' I have observed that almost all those who labour lies in the field and who go down to their business in the green meadows admit the animal world to a share in the faculty of reason. It is the cabinet thinkers who construct a universe of automatons. No better illustration of the two modes of observation can be found than in the scene of Goethe's Faust, where Faust and Wagner, walking in the field, are met by a strange dog. The first sees something more than a mere dog. He feels the presence of an intelligence within the outward semblance. In this case an evil intelligence, it is true, but still a something beyond mere tail and paws and ears. To Wagner it is a dog and nothing more. That will sit at the feet of his master and fawn on him if spoken to, who can be taught to fetch and carry or bring a stick. The end, however, proves different, so one mind sees the outside only, another projects itself into the mind of the creature, be it dog or horse or bird. 
Experience certainly educates the dog as it does the man. After long acquaintance and practice in the field, we learn the habits and ways of game, to know where it will or will not be found. A young dog in the same way dashes swiftly up a hedge, and misses the rabbit that, hearing him coming, doubles back behind a tree or stole. An old dog leaves nothing behind him, searching every corner. This is acquired knowledge. Neither does all depend upon hereditary predisposition, as exhibited in the various breeds, the setter, the pointer, the spaniel or greyhound, and their especial drift of brain. Their capacity is not wholly confined to one sphere. They possess an initiating power, what in man is called originality, invention, discovery. They make experiments. I had a pointer that exhibited this faculty in a curious manner. She was weakly when young, and for that reason, together with other circumstances, was never properly trained, a fact that may perhaps have prevented her mind from congealing into the stolidity of routine. She became an outdoor pet, and followed at heel everywhere. One day some ponds were netted, and of the fish taken a few chanced to be placed in a great stone trough, from which cattle drank in the yard, a common thing in the country. Some time afterwards, the trough being foul, the fish— they were roach, tench, perch, and one small jack, were removed to a shallow tub while it was being cleaned. In this tub, being scarcely a foot deep, though broad, the fish were, of course, distinctly visible, and at once became an object of the most intense interest to the pointer. She would not leave it, but stood watching every motion of the fish with her head now on one side, now on the other. There she must have remained some hours, and was found at last in the act of removing them one by one, and laying them softly, quite unhurt, on the grass. I put them back in the water, and waited to see the result. She took a good look, and then plunged her nose right under the surface, and halfway up the neck, completely submerging the head, and in that position groped about on the bottom till a fish came in contact with her mouth, and was instantly snatched out. Her head must have been under water each time nearly a minute, feeling for the fish. One by one she drew them out and placed them on the ground, till only the jack remained. He puzzled her, darting away swift as an arrow, and seeming to anticipate the enemy. But after a time he too was captured. They were not injured, not the mark of a tooth was to be seen, and swam as freely as ever when restored to the water. So soon as they were put in again, the pointer recommenced her fishing, and could hardly be got away by force. The fish were purposely left in the tub. The next day she returned to the amusement, and soon became so dexterous as to pull a fish out almost the instant her nose went under water. The jack was always the most difficult to catch, but she managed to conquer him sooner or later. When returned to the trough, however, she was done. The water was too deep. Scarcely anything could be imagined, apparently more opposite to the hereditary intelligence of a pointer than this and certainly no one attempted to teach her, neither did she do it for food. It was an original notion of her own. To what can it be compared but mind proceeding by experiment? They can also adjust their conduct to circumstances, as when they take to hunting on their own account. They then generally work in couples. If a spaniel, for instance, one of those allowed to lie loose about the farmhouses, takes to hunting for herself, she is almost always found to meet a canine friend at a little distance from the homestead. It is said that spaniels, when they go off like this, never bark when on the heels of a rabbit, as they would do if a sportsman were with them, and the chase legitimate. The suppression of what must be an almost uncontrollable inclination shows no little intelligence. 
If they gave tongue they would be certainly detected, and as certainly thrashed. To watch the sneaking way in which a spaniel will come home, after an unlawful expedition of this kind, is most amusing. She makes her appearance on the road or footpath, so as not to look as if coming from the hedges, and enters at the back or if any movement be going on, such as the driving of cattle, she will join in it, displaying extraordinary zeal in assisting, anything to throw off suspicion. Of all sport, if a man desires to widen his chest and gain some idea of the chase as it was in the ancient days, let him take two good greyhounds, and uncouple at the timorous flying hare, following himself on foot. A race like this over the elastic turf of the downs, inhaling with expanded lung air which acts on the blood as strong drink on the brain, stimulating the pulse and strengthening every fibre of the frame, is equal to another year of life. Coursing for the coursing's sake is capital sport. A hare, when sorely tried, with the hot breath from the hound's nostrils on his flanks, will sometimes puzzle them by dashing round and round a rick. Then, in sweeping circles, the trio strain their limbs, but the hare, having at the corners the inner lane and less ground to cover, easily keeps just ahead. This game lasts several minutes, till presently one of the hounds is sharp enough to dodge back and meet the hare the opposite way. Even then his quick eye and ready turn often give him another short breathing space by rushing away at a tangent. Rabbits, though of low degree in comparison with the pheasant, really form an important item in the list of the keeper's charges. Shooting generally commences with picking out the young rabbits about the middle or towards the end of the hay harvest, according as the season is early or late. Some are shot by the farmers, who have the right to use a gun earlier than this, while they still disport in the mowing grass. It requires experience and skill to select the young rabbit, just fit for the table from the old bucks, the does, which may yet bring forth another litter, and those little bunnies that do not exceed the size of rats. The grass conceals the body of the animal, and nothing is visible beyond the tips of the ears, and at thirty yards' distance one pair of ears is very like another pair. The developed ear is, however, less pointed than the other, and in the rabbit of a proper size they are, or seem to be, wider apart. The eye is also guided by the grass itself, and the elevation of the rabbit's head above it when lifted in alarm at a chance sound. If the animal is full-grown, of course, the head stands higher. In motion the difference is at once seen. The larger animal's back and flanks show boldly, while the lesser seem to slip through the grass. By these signs, and by a kind of instinct which grows upon one when always in the field, it is possible to distinguish between them even in tall grass and in the gloaming. This sort of shooting, if it does not afford the excitement of the pheasant badger, or require the alertness necessary in partridge-killing, is not without its special pleasures. These are chiefly to be attributed to the genial warmth of the weather at that season, when the reapers have only just begun to put the tall corn to the edge of their crooked swords, and one can linger by the hedgeside without dread of wintry chills. The aftermath in which the rabbits feed is not as tall as the mowing-grass, and more easy and pleasant to walk through, though it is almost devoid of flowers. Neither does it give so much shelter, and you must walk close to the hedge, gliding gently from bush to bush, the slower the better. Rabbits feed several times during the day, that is, in the very early morning, next about eleven o'clock, again at three or four, and again at six or seven. Not that every rabbit comes out to nibble at those hours, but about that time some will be seen moving outside the burries. 
as you stroll beside the hedge brushing the boughs a rabbit feeding two hundred yards away will lift his head inquiringly from the grass then stop and remain still as the elm tree hard by in a minute or two reassured the ears perked up so sharply fall back and he feeds again another advance of ten or twenty yards and up go the ears you are still till they drop once more the rabbit presently turns his back towards you sniffing about for the tenderest blades this is an opportunity and an advance of forty or fifty paces perhaps is accomplished now if you have a rook rifle you are near enough if a smooth bore the same system of stalking must be carried further yet if you are patient enough to wait when he takes alarm and only to advance when he feeds you are pretty sure to bag him sometimes when thus gliding with stealthy tread another rabbit will suddenly appear out of the ditch within easy reach it is so quiet he never suspected the presence of an enemy if you pause and keep quite still which is the secret of all stalking he will soon begin to feed and the moment he turns his back towards you up goes the gun not before because if he sees your arm move he will be off to the ditch true a snapshot might be made as he runs which at first sight would appear more sportsmanlike than potting but it is not so for it is ten chances to one that you do not kill him dead on the spot in the short distance he has to traverse perhaps the hind legs will be broken well then he will drag them along behind him using the forepaws with astonishing rapidity and power before the second barrel can be emptied he will gain the shelter of the fern that grows on the edge of the bank and dive into a burrow there to die in misery so that it is much better to steadily pot him besides which if an animal dies in the burrow all the other animals in that particular burrow desert it till nature's scavengers have done their work a dog cannot well be taken when stalking not that dogs will not follow quietly but because a rabbit catching sight of a dog is generally stricken with panic even if a hundred yards away and bolts immediately i have seen a rabbit whose back was broken by shot drag itself ten yards to the ditch if the forelegs are broken then he is helpless all the kicks of the hind legs only tumble him over and over without giving him much progress the effects of shot are very strange and sometimes almost inexplicable as when a hare which has received a pellet through the edge of the heart runs a quarter of a mile before dropping it is noticed that hares and rabbits hit in the vital organs about the heart often run a considerable distance and then suddenly in the midst of their career roll head over heels dead both hares and rabbits are occasionally killed with marks of old shot wounds but not very often and they are but of a slight character the pellets are found just under the skin with a kind of hump round them shot holes through the ears are frequently seen of course doing no serious harm now and then a rabbit hit in the head will run round and round in circles making not the slightest attempt to escape the first time i saw this not understanding it i gave the creature the second barrel but next time i let the rabbit do as he would he circled round and round going at a rapid pace i stood in his way and he passed between my legs after half a dozen circles the pace grew slower finally he stopped sat up quite still for a minute or so and then dropped and died the pellet had struck some portion of the brain i once while looking for snipe with charges of small shot in the barrels roused a fine hare and fired without apparent effect 
but after crossing about half of the field with a spaniel tearing behind he began to slacken speed and i immediately followed the hare dodged the spaniel admirably and it was with the utmost difficulty i secured him refraining from firing the second barrel on purpose he had been stopped by one single little pellet in the great sinew of the hind leg which had partly cut it through had it been a rabbit he would certainly have escaped into a bury and there perhaps died as shot wounds frequently fester so that in stalking rabbits or waiting for them behind a tree or bush it is much better to take a steady aim at the head and so avoid torturing the creature potting is hardly sport yet it has an advantage to those who take a pleasure in observing the ways of bird and animal there is just sufficient interest to induce one to remain quiet and still which is the prime condition of seeing anything and in my own case the rabbits so patiently stalked have at least often gone free either from their own amusing antics or because the noise of the explosion would disturb something else under observation in winter it is too cold then you step quietly and yet briskly up to a fence or a gateway and glance over it and shoot at once or with the spaniels hunt the bunnies from the fern upon the banks yourself one side of the hedge and the keeper the other in excavating his dwelling the rabbit thoughtless of science constructs what may be called a natural auditorium singularly adapted for gathering the expiring vibrations of distant sound his round tunnel bored in a sandy bank is largest at the opening like the mouth of a trumpet and contracts within a form which focuses the undulations of the air to obtain the full effect the ear should listen some short way within but the sound as it is thrown backwards after entering is often sufficiently marked to be perceptible when you listen outside the great deep ditches are dry in summer and though shooting be not the object yet a gun for knocking over a casual vermin is a pleasant excuse for idling in a reclining position shoulder high in fern hidden like a skirmisher in such an entrenchment a mighty root bulging from the slope of the bank forms a natural seat there is a cushion of dark green moss to lean against and the sand worked out from the burrows one nearly on a level with the head and another lower down has here filled up the ditch to some height making a footstool in the ditch lie numbers of last year's oak leaves which so sturdily resist decay all the winter and spring they were soaked by the water from the land springs as those which only run in wet weather are called draining into it and to that water they communicated a peculiar flavour slightly astringent even moderate-sized streamlets become tainted in the latter part of the autumn by the mass of leaves they carry down or filter through in woodland districts Often the cottagers draw their water from a small pool filled by such a ditch, and coated at the bottom with a thick layer of decomposing leaves. The taste of this water is strong enough to overcome the flavour of their weak tea, yet they would rather use such water than walk fifty yards to a brook. It must, however, be admitted that the brooks at that time are also tinctured with leaf, and there seems to be no harm in it. Out from among these dead leaves in the ditch protrudes a crooked branch, fallen long since from the oak and covered with grey lichen. On the right hand a tangled thicket of bramble with its uneven-shaped stems closes the spot in, and on the left a stole of hazel rises with the parasitical hardy fern, fringing it near the earth. The outer bark of the hazel is very thin. It is of a dark, mottled hue. Bruise it roughly, and the inner bark shows a bright green. The lowly ivy creeps over the bank, its leaves with five angles and variegated with grey streaks. 
Through the hawthorn bushes above comes a faint but regular sound. It is the parting fibres of the grass-blades in the meadow on the other side, as the cows tear them apart, steadily eating their way onwards. The odour of their breath floats heavy on the air. The sun is sinking, and there is a hush and silence. But the rabbit-burrow here at my elbow is not silent. It seems to catch and heighten faint noises from a distance. A man is walking slowly home from his work up the lane yonder. The fall of his footsteps is distinctly rendered by the hole here, the dull thuds of a far-off mallet or bittle, beetle, driving in a stake are plainly audible. The thump-thump of a horse's hoofs, cantering on the sward by the roadside, though deadened by the turf, are reproduced or sharpened. Most distinct of all comes the regular sound of oars against the tholepins or rollocks of a boat moving on the lake many fields away, so that in all probability to the rabbit his hole must be a perfect ear of Dionysius, magnifying a whisper, unless indeed its turns and windings confuse the undulations of sound. It is observable that before the rabbit ventures forth he stays and listens, just within the entrance of his burrow, where he cannot see any danger, unless absolutely straight before him, a habit that may have unconsciously grown up from the apparent resonance of sound there. Sitting thus silently on the root of the oak, presently I hear a slight rustling among the dead leaves at the bottom of the ditch. They heave up as if something was pushing underneath, and after a while, as he comes to the heap of sand thrown out by the rabbits, a mole emerges, and instantly, with a shiver as it were of his skin, throws off the particles of dust upon his fur, as a dog fresh from the water sends a shower from his coat. The summer weather, having dried the clay under the meadow turf and made it difficult to work, he has descended into the ditch, beneath which there is still a certain moistness, and where he can easily bore a tunnel. It is rather rare to see a mole above ground. Fortunately for him he is of diminutive size, or so glossy a fur would prove his ruin. As it is, every other old pollard willow-tree along the hedge is hung with miserable moles, caught in traps, and after death suspended, like criminals swinging on a gibbet, from the end of a slender willow-bough. Moles seem to breed in the woods, first perhaps because they are less disturbed there, next because under the trees the earth is usually softer, retains its moisture longer, and is easier to work. From the woods their tracks branch out, ramifying like the roads which lead from a city. They have, in addition, main arteries of traffic, king's highways, along which they will journey one after the other, so that the mole-catcher, if he can discover such a road, slaughters many in succession. The heaps they throw up are awkward in mowing grass, the scythe striking against them, and in consequence of complaints of their rapid multiplication in the woods, the keeper has to employ men to reduce their number. It is curious to note how speedily the mole buries himself in the soil, it is as if he suddenly dived into the earth. Another slight rustling, a pause, and it is repeated, this time on the bank, among the dry grass. It is mice. They have a nervous habit of progressing in sharp, short stages. They rush forward seven or eight inches with lightning-like celerity. A dun streak seems to pass before your eye. Then they stop short a moment or two, and again make another dash. This renders it difficult to observe them especially as a single dead brown leaf is sufficient to hide one. It is so silent that they grow bold, and play their antics freely, darting to and fro, round and under the stoles, chasing each other. Sometimes they climb the bushes, 
running along the upper surface of the boughs that chanced to be nearly horizontal. Once, on a hawthorn branch in a hedge, I saw a mouse descending with an acorn. He was perhaps five feet from the ground, and how and from whence he got his burden was rather puzzling at first. Probably the acorn dropping from the tree had been caught and held in the interlacing bush, till observed by the keen, if tiny, eyes below. Mice have a magical way of getting into strange places. In some farmhouses they still use the ancient, old-fashioned lanterns made of tin, huge machines intended for a tallow candle, and with plates of thin translucent horn instead of glass. They are not wholly despicable, since if set on the ground and kicked over by a recalcitrant cow in the sheds, the horn does not break as glass would. These lanterns, having a handle at the top, are by it hung up to the beam in the kitchen, and sometimes, to the astonishment of the servants in the quiet of the evening, they are found to be animated by some motive power, swinging to and fro, and partly turning round. A mouse has got in for the grease. But how? That is the wonderment, as the rustic philosophers express it, for being hung from the beam, eight or nine feet from the stone-flagged floor, there seems no way of approach for the mouse except by walking on the ceiling, or along and partly underneath the beam itself. If so, it would seem to be mainly by the propulsive power exerted previous to starting on the trip, just as a man can get a little way up the perpendicular side of a rick by running at it. Occasionally, no doubt, the mouse has entered when the lantern has been left open while lighted on the ground, and so got shut in. But mice have been found in lanterns cobwebbed from long disuse. Suddenly there peeps out from the lower rabbit-hole the stealthy reddish body of a weasel. I instinctively reach for the gun leaning against the bank, and immediately the spell is broken. The mice rush to their holes, the weasel darts back into the bowels of the earth, a rabbit that has quietly slipped out unseen into the grass, bounds with eager haste to cover, and out of the oak overhead there rises, with a great clatter of wings, a wood-pigeon that had settled there. When the pale winter sunshine falls upon the bare branches of an avenue of elms, such as so often ornament parks, they appear lit up with a faint rosy colour, which instantly vanishes on the approach of a shadow. This shimmering mirage in the boughs seems due to the myriads of lesser twigs, which at the extremities have a tinge of red, invisible at a distance till the sunbeams illuminate the trees. Beyond this passing gleam of colour nothing relieves the blackness of the January landscape, except here and there the bright silvery bark of the birch. For several seasons now in succession the thrush has sung on the shortest days, as though it were spring. A little later, in the early mornings, the blackbird joins, filling the copse with a chorus at the dawn. But if the wind turns to east or north, the rooks perch on the oaks in the hedgerows in the middle of the day, puffing out their feathers and seeming to abandon all search for food, as if seized with uncontrollable melancholy. Hardy as these birds are, a long frost kills them in numbers, principally by slow starvation. They die during the night, dropping suddenly from their roosting place on the highest boughs of the great beech-trees, with a thud distinctly heard in the silence of the woods. The leaves of the beech decay so gradually as to lie in heaps beneath for months, filling up the hollows, so that an unwary passer-by may plunge knee-deep in leaves. Rooks, when feeding, usually cross the field facing the wind, perhaps to prevent the ruffling of their feathers. Wood-pigeons have apparently much increased in numbers of recent years. They frequent sheltered spots where the bushes diminish the severity of the frost. 
sometimes on the hills at a lonely farmhouse where the bailiff has a long-barrelled ancient fowling-piece he will lay a train of grain for them and with a double charge of shot kill many at a time men have boasted of shooting twenty at once but with an ordinary gun it is not credible and the statement without wilful exaggeration may arise from confusion in counting for it is a fact that some of the older uneducated country labourers cannot reckon correctly it is not unusual in parishes to hear of a cottage woman who has had twenty children upon investigation the real number is found to be sixteen or seventeen yet nothing on earth will convince the mother that she has not given birth to a score they get hazy in figures when exceeding a dozen a pigeon is not easily brought down the quills are so stiff and strong that the shot if it comes aslant will glance off many pigeons roost in the oaks of the hedges choosing by preference one well hung with ivy and when it is a moonlit night afford tolerable sport it requires a gun on each side of the hedge a stick flung up awakes the birds they rise with a rush and clatter and in the wildness of their flight and the dim light are difficult to hit there is a belief that pigeons are partially deaf if stalked in the daytime they take little heed of footsteps or slight noises which would alarm other creatures but on the other hand they are quick of eye and are gone directly anything suspicious appears in sight you may get quite under them and shoot them on the bough at night it is not their greater wakefulness but the noise they make in rising which renders them good protectors of preserves it alarms other birds and can be heard at some distance when a great mound and hedgerow is grubbed up the men engaged in the work often anticipate making a considerable bag of the rabbits whose holes riddle it in every direction thinking to dig them out even of those innermost chambers whence the ferret has sometimes been unable to dislodge them but this hope is almost always disappointed and when the grub-axe and spade have laid bare the burries only recently teeming with life not a rabbit is found by some instinct they have discovered the approach of destruction and as soon as the first few yards of the hedge are levelled secretly depart after a bury has been ferreted it is some time before another colony takes possession this is seemingly from the intense antipathy of the rabbit to the smell of the ferret even when shot at and pressed by dogs a rabbit in his hasty rush will often pass a hole which would have afforded instant shelter because it has been recently ferreted at this season the labourers are busy with beetle pronounced bittle a huge mallet and iron wedges splitting the tough elm butts and logs for firewood in old times a cottager here and there with a taste for astrology used to construct an almanac by rule of thumb predicting the weather for the ensuing twelve months from the first twelve days of january as the wind blew on those days so the prevailing weather of the months might be foretold the aged men however say that in this divination the old style must be adhered to for the sequence of signs and omens still follows the ancient reckoning which ought never to have been interfered with End of chapter 5